Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Henserling, and you are listening to Watch This List. Today, my very special guest is Joel, who is my real-life friend who I met when I was in college and actually started Letterboxd around the same time with. uh, I had one follower, and it was Joel. Uh, and probably only uh, got my likes from Joel as well. If you uh, look back in my history, we just liked each other's reviews forever and had nobody else. I am very honored that he agreed to chat with me today. Um, his handle is the deaf kid uh, at letterbox.com. Joel, I'm so happy to have you here. Please tell the good people a little bit about yourself and what topic that you chose for today. Hello, everybody. My name is Joel, as she said. Uh, My handle is the Deaf Kid, and that's the D-E-F-K-I-D. It's a play on, uh, well, I'm not going to explain the pun, but uh, it's because I am deaf. Uh, So it seemed like a worthy worthy name that I should choose. And I've been on Letterboxd, like she says, for a few years now. And yeah, Amy is still often the only person who likes my reviews. You've got a little bit more now. You've got you've got you've got a little bit more followers. Joel's a little bit under the radar though. Sure. Yeah. You you kind of you you kind of incognito. Yeah, I'm not I'm not somebody who wants to interact that much on on there. I'll respond to comments when people comment on mine. Um and I'm flattered. I'm actually kind of amazed that anybody cares what I think at all. But um, yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun writing about movies that we like. And uh, Joel, what did you pick for today for your top five topic? My topic is uh, growers, not showers. Um, And I wanted to pick movies that I thought had grown on me. I guess I've been revisiting a lot of uh, old movies that I saw when I was younger um, and wanted to see whether my opinion held up. And some of these movies have just gobsmacked me basically i'm in awe of what they've done and that doesn't mean i necessarily love them but i i see now their greatness in a way that i couldn't maybe when i first saw them in some cases that's years ago in some cases that's within the last couple of years uh and they're just movies that have really made an impact on me but this is also for me personally because i had uh I had already seen, I'd happened to see all of these too. Because it could have been that the ones that grew in you were first time watches for me. But actually, all of these were uh, like rewatches. So I think it was like giving giving some of them a second chance that maybe I would not have uh, otherwise. Yeah. That's definitely true. I know That's, for yeah. a couple of these. Yes. Yes. Joel has really put me through the ringer here. Um, and, uh, (laughs) but we still want you to watch this list. Don't get me wrong. Ignore me. Okay. Whatever my qualms are, because Joel is going to defend his reasoning persuasively and inarguably. So you will all, you will all want to watch these very unpleasant films. I'm going to do my best attempt at a, a Cicero defense of the Republic here. Without further ado then, Joel, we're going to start at uh, number five, 
which is Naked, directed by Mike Lee, 1993. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Mike Lee is a British director. He's done a lot of movies with uh, the same people, like he uses the same ensemble. Often, Joel and I just watched Topsy Turvy uh, recently as part of our monthly uh, watch list that we like to do. And um, we also had Secrets and Lies a couple of years back for yeah. on one of our watch lists. So actually not somebody that we were thrilled about until I saw Naked. Yeah. Yeah. He really does pick these almost, uh, I don't want to call it British BBC masterpiece theater sort of actors, but he has this sort of uh, carousel of, familiar players um if and these are mainstays of british cinema basically these guys are they're famous in their own right but he really attracts a lot of this talent um repeatedly part part of that's because of his method you know he famously does i don't know if this is still true but this is certainly how he made his name didn't have a screenplay when filming would start he would have a premise and then would workshop all the characters with the actors that he wanted to work with. And I know that's true with Naked as well. Apparently, from what I read, it took a long time to get this, um, not to film the piece, but to get the characters really where he was satisfied. I've heard there's a lot of improvisation. I find that hard to believe with Naked. Yes, as it is incredibly verbose. Verbose uh, and... And fast, like these characters talk with, you know, this is like sweet smell of success with its just incredible verbal rapacity. These characters speak fast. They speak smart. It's dripping with acidic bile. From As somebody who's just a lover of the English language, it's wonderful in that regard, even if the characters are not uh, so lovable. Uh, yeah. Well, and I was going to compare it to Virginia Woolf, too. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is the same uh, screenwriter as Sweet Smell, Ernest Lehman, my man R Lehman. Uh, and it has that same sort of uh, vitriol, uh, cutthroat loquaciousness where, where yeah. everybody, there's just an incredible amount of words. It's almost Shakespearean um, in, in, the, in the way that it's just like very, very fast. But just a lot of words. And it's not just like the amount of words, obviously. It's the density of what is being said. Um, and I know density can mean a negative thing, like, you know, when you call a person dumb. But in but in this case, density as in density of meaning, there's a lot to unpack. You can watch Naked and rewind the movie just to hear the same thing again, because especially, for instance, when uh, Johnny goes on his rants, which he does several times in the movie, you have to rewind it just to listen to what he said and then pick it apart. Like, okay, I see the, I see the joke there, or I see the, uh, the philosophical meaning that he's trying to get at, uh, however imperfectly he often does. But it's a hell of a ride, <laughs> frankly. There's, there's really nothing like it. Uh, and and I there's not a lot of movies where you could just say there's nothing like this, but but Naked is one of them, and I feel like it's a movie that not a lot of people have heard of, much less seen. And 
understandably, it's it's not an easy movie to watch. Um, you know, there's a reason it's on the growers list. I know you loved it instantly and loved it may not be the right way, but it certainly hit you right away. It took me a little while. It took me really a few weeks. I think I gave it four stars at first out of five. Over time, I was just blown away. So so your first, what was your first impression initially? And then as it grew on you, what did that morph into? How did that change? Well, my first impression was sodden misery, basically. Um, this, And you know this from my reviews of the past, whether we're talking about Raise the Red Lantern or uh, Smiles of a Summer Night, um, these movies where these characters just continuously make their lives worse because they are miserable. Now, I know Smiles of a Summer Night is supposed to be a comedy. I didn't like it very much. But, yeah, um, yeah, but so my first impression was, I don't, I don't like this movie, but I see some of why it's good. That was my first impression. Um, I gave it four stars kind of grudgingly and wasn't sure if I wanted to give it more than that just because, oh, it's so miserable to watch. These are not happy people, um, in any way, um, the only happy person in the movie is Sandra, and she's only in it for the last five minutes. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 a it's a slug, it's a slugfest basically um, to get through that first time. I think it got it was a lot easier this time rewatching it. Uh, now I'm well familiar with the story and the characters, and I that power that I got out of the last maybe twenty or thirty minutes of it shines the whole way through now that I know what the movie is about. Um, yeah, that'd be my introduction to the the themes, I guess, uh, without going too far into it. Yeah, it's it's essentially, I mean, now that I've brought up um, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's essentially a similar structure where we're talking about two men, two women. Sex, Lies, and Videotape is also this, where there's like centrally four characters who talk the whole time. It's about relationships. Uh, it's about connection, vulnerability, the lack thereof. The difference between Sex, Lies, and Videotape and, and Virginia Woolf and this one is that they actually go outside of it. Like Johnny, uh, the, the main character, goes out and interacts with a security guy and he interacts with um, the guy yelling for his girlfriend on the street. So there's... There is more to it, but it does focus. It does have a very intimate feel uh, yeah. amongst the, the main characters. Yeah, and yeah, that's 100% correct. And I hadn't really thought about that comparison to Virginia Woolf and to, uh, what was the other one? Sexualized and videotape. I would say there's one major difference besides the fact that Johnny goes outside, which is that Johnny really dominates the entire film, even the scenes where he's not in there at all. And actually, I wanted to bring this up uh, on the second viewing. What I noticed really is that every character Johnny meets, arguably every character, is in some way a part of Johnny's personality. They are an outgrowth of who he is as a person. Each of these characters, they reflect something about who he is as a person. Uh, and it's it's quite profound in that way, even if they're not all gifted with his verbal IQ, to say the least. Well, and David 
Thulis is the one who plays Johnny, the actor, and he it's one of the best performances. I mean, if you if you just see it for that, it's worth it because it's it's extraordinary what he's able to it's, how it's it's just like a tour de force of Yeah, the that phrase that that uh tour de force gets can get overused sometimes, but this one genuinely is it's a remarkable performance. Like he throws himself into it verbally as well as uh, physically. Like he has a, I don't want to call it a weird gait, but he has this sort of lurch to him on his side where when he's walking, where he's like favoring one side, he has a lot of these verbal tics. He uses his hands very well. It's a very expressive uh, performance. Um, Incredible. I, I have no doubt that the whatever academies there are around the world completely ignored this performance uh, other than the critics. But it's not the type of performance that wins awards, but it should. It's incredible. Um, that, yeah. That's my take. This next movie that is on Joel's list is a very similar, um, very similar verbosity, uh, but I don't like it at all. <laughs> So actually, this is a good segue, Joel. So, so Naked, see it. It's on Criterion. Uh, it's on the Criterion Channel right now, directed by Mike Lee, 1993. And they just remastered it, my understanding, is last year. The remaster is gorgeous. Um, yes. It's the Criterion version. I don't know if they're going to update it. But the one on Criterion looks, it looks good. But the remaster, you can, you can tell it's better. And the the commentary um, is also the director's commentary is also on Criterion Channel as well. But n- number four on uh, Joel's list is a little movie called With Nail and I by Bruce Robinson from 1987. This is a cult classic, considered a cult classic, where Richard E. Grant now is the one who is just chatting up a storm, um, and just there's so many words. So I. Uh, Tell us, tell us a little bit about how this first sat with you, because I'm pretty sure that you liked it from the get go, um, but maybe appreciated it more on a rewatch as opposed to just like not liking it at all and then coming around. Uh, that's actually a really good question. I gave it a 3.5 on the first viewing, and I remember saying I wished I had more love to give it. Um, I said that you could see, uh, I actually took boast about my own turns of phrase, but I said you could you could glimpse the the beating heart at its besotted core, but it wasn't enough to make me love it. Uh, and on the rewatch, I always felt unsettled with that. Like I, I genuinely thought the movie was really funny. I just found it too chaotic and I found it also um what would be the word? Uh, miserable. Again, miserable. Mm-hmm. What the second watch did for me, and this was late last year, I watched it for the second time because I felt like I had missed something. Uh, I saw it the second time and I realized it's it's a breakup movie. It's a movie about people going their own way. And I wrote that in my second review, I wrote that it was a love letter. It's a love letter to the people you know are bad for you because that's effectively what it is. And director, uh, the writer-director, Bruce Robinson, he wrote this based on his diaries from somebody he had as a roommate 
Vivian McNeil or something like that. Uh, despite the name Vivian, it was a, it was a, a guy, but he uh, was extremely self-destructive, constantly drinking uh, to the point of absolute alcoholism, unable to function without it. But he was also at some in some ways the life of the party, uh, which uh, Whitnell. I love how you said Whitnell. Sorry, like Whit. Oh my gosh, so embarrassing. So how do you say it, Whitnell? Whitnell. Whitnell. Yeah, you don't really pronounce the the H. You. Sincere I, apologies. And here I am acting like I'm a, an expert on British pronunciations. Um, Whitnell. Yeah, my understanding is. He, the name Whitnell, it was based on, he, gave, he got it from a friend of his and it was spelled W-I-T-H-N-A-L-L, but he didn't know how it was spelled initially and he wrote it down as N-A-I-L and then he just liked that spelling and borrowed it. Um, and yeah, that's where we get the name Whitnell. Mm. Probably should have had that conversation prior. <laughs> we'll edit it. We'll edit it out. We'll chop this up. Yeah, apologies, people. So Whitnell and I. Yes. So it's the, it's basically the plot is that it's these two guys who are best friends, roommates. It kind of just follows them chatting and going around and they go see Uncle Monty and they kind of do, go on this like little adventure. And um, it's just incredibly talky, chatty. Um, and it's not as philosophical as... Naked, I wouldn't say as far as what they're talking about, but that could also be because there's so much drinking. I would say that it is philosophical. It's very philosophical, especially when um, Marwood, the I character, uh, he doesn't get named in the movie. The only reason we know his name is Marwood is because of the screenplay. Uh, and he apparently also it appears on the telegram that they get at one point. It actually says Marwood on there. but And he represents Bruce Robinson himself, the director. Yes, yes. Right. Um, Marwood, the I character. Philosophical. Oh, yes. When, yeah, right. That's right. When he does these narrations, the, the voiceovers, it's not constant. There's maybe like 10 or 15 voiceover lines in the whole movie. He's he's basically commenting on his relationship with, with Noel, where he's like, I know I... This is like this moment in our relationship. It's um, it's not a romantic relationship, but there's a lot of intimacy there between these two. And the movie opens. I could tell, by the way, how much you don't really like the movie by how you described the movie. <laughs> like these people do these things and they go off to see Uncle Monty. Like the movie, <laughs> the movie opens. Right. With, with Marwood, who is apparently he's not overdosing. It seems like he had a drug that the drug trip that's gone bad. And he's conscious at this moment. The first lines in the movie are about how he needs to confront with about his problems. And he tries to go through this process where we're going to do this and maybe that'll fix the problem. We're going to do this. Maybe that'll fix the problem. We're going to go to the country for a holiday. Maybe that'll fix the problem. And what he realized, I mean, it's, again, it's almost like a, a romantic breakup where they're like, let's do this to add a little spice into the relationship and maybe we'll rekindle the love. No, it doesn't work. Whitnell is bent on immolation 
and he's going to destroy himself. And that's what Marwood realizes basically over the course of the movie is I just have to leave this guy or else I'm going to get taken down with him. Um, and that's why I think the movie is kind of powerful is there's that one quote from, from Danny, the drug dealer late, late in the movie he says that politics is something like a rising balloon and you have to decide whether you're going to hold on to it or let go of it. That quote is Marwood's decision making. Basically, he has to decide how how long do I hold on to this balloon? Because at a certain point, the balloon is going to get too high in the air. It's going to pop. We're both going to fall to the ground. Or do I let go of it while I still can? Um, that it really it spoke to me, I guess, in that way. Um, even though I have no comparable friends to Whitmill, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Um, Does it remind you of anybody? At times, but no one like that was a close friend. I didn't have any roommates or anything that I could compare that to. Um, I've certainly known alcoholics, so. Well, it'd be hard to find someone, yeah, someone so actively going down that that trajectory would be, it's, it's so extreme in its depiction, I think. And then, so it's, it's a weird movie where in the sense that, um, the characters are are the extreme rather than any of their anything that goes on. It's kind of like everything about the movie is fairly normal, but it's an, everything is intensified because of the characters. Yeah, really, the thing that this movie has going for it really is the script and the characters. Um, Bruce Robinson apparently hated the way he shot this movie. In retrospect, he he thinks that. Uh, what was the next movie with Richard E. Grant? How to Get Ahead in Advertising. How to Get Ahead in Advertising. Which is a great movie as well, um, although nowhere near as good. But he thinks, Bruce Robinson thinks that movie is way better. And partly because he thinks it was way better shot. Uh, maybe he had better resources available at that time. Whitnell and I is not a very pretty movie to look at. Um, there are a few vistas that are pretty, but it's... Uh, it's mainly a movie where the script is the reason for its existence is that these characters are compelling and yeah, there's that, that sense that there's something being lost uh, in the movie just thematically. Yeah, exactly. This is a, uh, this is a movie that um, became a cult favorite over time. So it's one that um, I think is not, one that the average person will have heard of, but definitely people who love movies. So this is a cinephile uh, gold mine. And it's funny. So if you, yeah, and it's funny. It is very it's acerb funny. Acerbic. Mm -hmm. uh, so Whitnell and I, I'm going to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> Whitnell and I, uh, also on Criterion, uh, Bruce Robinson, 1987. Check it out. I do think that uh, I did go up a, an entire star, Joel. So you have to give me some credit. Even though it's on the low end, a rewatch did make me appreciate it a little bit more. It's just something that it's hard for me to grasp, but worth watching just just to have that experience. It's it's also very unique in in um, in what it's saying and the way it says it. Yeah, I absolutely agree, hundred percent. Now, number three on Joel's top five growers list. 
We have John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, 1962. I feel like that name should be said with like gravitas and fanfare or something. The, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance seems like such a such a headliner. And you know what? In the film, it is. That's actually the way the movie, um, they have that one part at the end where someone says that exact line, they say the movie title, and it is meant to have that that impact. Like this is this is a significant thing that happened or didn't happen or extra, happen. extra. Yeah. Joel, you're getting ahead of us here. Okay, okay. So so Man Who Shot Liberty Valance it is a John Ford Western, uh, for those of you uh unfamiliar, and it stars John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. Uh, as well as a host of other terrific actors, uh, villainous Lee Marvin, who's always such a just a great bad guy, and yeah. uh, Edmund O'Brien, who I love, um, is Mr. Peabody, uh, the newspaper editor, and then yeah. uh, we got R- Woody Strode, who I love. Uh, I just saw him in The Last Voyage, and. Uh, He's in uh, Spartacus. Yeah, I was going to say Spartacus. I think he appeared mm-hmm. in there, and which the I haven't seen that, but I know. Yeah. Okay. Professionals is on my watch list. I haven't seen that one yet. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. and you, you got Vera Miles and a oddly less grimy, but nonetheless slightly disgusting looking Lee Van Cleef uh, yes. is in there as one of Liberty Balance's uh, henchmen. So this is very much a movie that is uh, deconstructing what Hollywood has always portrayed the old West to be. Uh, and I think brilliantly at the end when it kind of undercuts the whole meaning of the movie. I think it, the last 10 minutes of the movie completely alters the interpretation and in a, br- in a brilliant way. Yeah. And then so it's competing. It's competing ideologies, but also since Ford was largely made westerns it's also just just something very it feels very personal to him Um, yes story particularly if it were told by somebody else or a different director i think it would be different but the fact that it's him and that it's john wayne also who he frequently collaborated with um gives it sort of a different feel it's a little bit of a revisionist western um, just like The Searchers, which was also John Ford and uh, John Wayne. That was a revisionist Western. But this one, I feel, is far more subversive in, in, in a way. Uh, maybe subversive is not the right word because I think it actually reaffirms the past, which is somewhat radical for a revisionist movie to do. But it is definitely taking what you think you know and sort of commenting on that. John Ford, his settings have always gotten a lot of attention, right? We, You could talk about Stagecoach, again, shooting in Monument Valley. And The Searchers, I'm pretty sure, takes a, takes place around Arches National Park in, in Utah. Um, at least I'm pretty sure I recognize some of those cliff faces. But his settings have always gotten a lot of attention. But here... That black and white to me is gorgeous. It's a beautifully shot film. I'm not a huge John Ford guy, as we've talked about before. I did not really care for The Searchers. I thought it was okay. I did not like How Green Was My Valley. 
Um, or my darling Clementine, oh. lest we forget. Oh, I hated that. Lest movie. we forget, Joel. That movie made no sense. Joel um. <laughs> Joel does not frequently dislike movies, so anytime that there's one that he really does not vibe with, I it is in, ingrained in my memory. And my darling Clementine, I'm sorry to say, I believe my friend Mark loves that one. Um, but no yes, mm-hmm. his, his brother gets murdered. You think he would be interested in solving the murder? Instead, he just talks to the town people, and, and it's. Joel is in therapy, uh, trying to resolve this issue. He's yes. working on it. Okay, folks, don't worry about him. Among many other issues that I yeah. have therapy for. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, that's a good point. This might be your favorite John Ford to date, would you say? Yes. yes. And yes. it is. Like you, I remember you mentioned that you thought the, for, the, the film uh, was too straightforward, not subtle in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, Preachy. Uh, little preaching. Yes, and, and it absolutely is. And if it didn't have those last 10 minutes, I would not love this movie. Um, I would think it good. It still is a decent, good movie. But the last 10 minutes, the question of who actually shot Liberty Balance and whether that is important, whether it even matters, the, the truth, I think is a profound observation by John Ford. Because essentially the film is not only a commentary on the Western genre, it's a commentary on the United States in general as a country. I feel like an American would get this movie way better than uh, a European or Asian or African would if they watched it and were trying to understand it. I don't think they would because it doesn't. It's talking so much about America, like Jimmy Stewart has a whole class in the movie where he's teaching about the constitution and the right of voting and all this. And what I think the movie is ultimately getting at in that ending, when it just completely cuts the leg off of the previous hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes, is it saying that the truth does not matter. It matters what people believe is the truth. The the most famous quote is that when fact becomes, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. So it doesn't matter who shot Liberty Balance. There's so much deconstruction of story these days where people try and pick apart the past and they they learn that you know their teacher lied to them in school, which is 100% correct. It's factual. Your teacher did not tell you the full truth about whatever. They simplified things or they just repeated things that they heard, which were also not true. Was George Washington a good general? No. No, he was actually a really terrible general who almost lost the U.S., the American Revolutionary War. But that's not what we learned. We learned that he was a great leader. And the question is, does that really matter? And in my opinion, um, I think anyone who studies human history as much as I do or more, I think it's important to acknowledge that humans need stories. They need myths to believe in. That's what unites a culture is having something to uh, to believe in. The importance is the myth that unites, not the, not the facts. The truth absolutely does matter, um, but it doesn't, the truth doesn't necessarily unite people or give them a common cause, uh, which is, I think, what Liberty Balance is, uh, or what the man who shot Liberty Balance is trying to say, is that 
that we need stories in order to have some sort of coalescing that we can create from. And that may not be the truth. And maybe that doesn't matter in the context of, of this movie. It's, I think is what it's saying. And I find that to be extremely powerful. Um, I, maybe that won't work for everybody, but I, when I saw that the first time, not the first time, sorry, most recently, that just stood out to me as just this, uh, this wonderful observation about how humans actually are. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I can put it any better than that. I, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it's profound. Man who shot Liberty Valance, uh, Directed by John Ford, 1962. Check it out on Amazon. That's where I rented it. Um, and see if if you get it the first time, if it really has that resonation or upon a rewatch. But either way, a very, I think, a, a important movie um, just to have seen and kind of ponder these, these kind of ideological musings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and keeping the Western theme because uh, Joel kind of kept the British theme for five and four with Naked and Whitnall, uh, Liberty Valance, and then to Unforgiven, uh, number two, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood, 1992, uh, Best Picture winner um, and multiple Oscars involved here for direction, Gene Hackman, stellar stellar cast, just like... uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And uh, it is, in a similar sense, um, kind of a, an homage of sorts to the Western genre because Acewood came from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he directs this himself and he stars in it himself. It's kind of an older, gruffer version. Uh, is more talky than The Man With No Name, so it's not necessarily a reprisal, but... Joel, I know this has been one of your favorites for a long time, so I'm very interested on how this one would qualify as growing on you because it was something that you already loved, right? I've loved this movie for a long time, but I saw this when I was a teenager, and it was all right. I probably would give it a 3.5 at that point, um, somewhere around there. the The meanings of it didn't really seem obvious to me at the time. And it didn't really speak to me. It just seemed like a good Western, a decent Western. But the movie is so morally ambiguous in its presentation. Like, you know, Eastwood is this is the the hero, the anti-hero, I guess you could say. But he's, I mean, it's hard to applaud his actions um, at any point in the movie. It's really, uh, it's really something that's, like your traditional characters, right? When you're talking about a Western, you're going to have law, you're going to have the law guy, you're going to have the sheriff. Well, you have him here, but he's an utterly corrupt, uh, trashy, despotic person who really is as bad as English Bob or these other characters that are in the movie. Who are. He doesn't think he is, though. No, no, he doesn't because he thinks uh, he's preserving yeah. law and order. Yes. Yeah. Little Bill played by Gene Hackman, is the sheriff of uh, Big Whiskey. Big Whiskey, Wyoming. Big Big Whiskey, Wyoming. He thinks that he is, no, I mean, really believes that he is principled. These are low lives. You know, he's above them. You know, um, that 
he does not deserve to be put in the category of these people and that he's on the on the right side. So that's an interesting, it's kind of uh, reminds me of The Tall T, uh, which is a movie that Joel chose for one of our watch lists where the bad guy has a code, you know. I, it's always a great thing, always a sign of good writing when you kind of understand the bad guy and kind of you're begrudgingly against them, but they have a sort of maniacal reasoning to their actions that you can kind of understand. That's always something that's enjoyable. So yeah, you've got that sheriff who kind of goes against the, the archetype or the trope of being law and order. Cause yeah. Eastwood kind of flips that. Yeah. It's like you said, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it, but it only really, really grew on me, especially in the last few years when I rewatched it and was like, I get this movie now. It's about power dynamics, that which is what I wrote my review about, about how these people are constantly trying to test what they can get away with, what they can do. You have little Bill who constantly uh, is doing new things that shock the people around him, the townsfolk, right? He beats English Bob to a pulp in public after he disarms him and he has guns trained on on this guy and then he just crushes him, just nearly kills him. Uh, it's really like brutal, uh, but he gets away with it, right? Because everybody's scared of him. And you've got other characters as well who are also trying to get away with things and they're pushing things like uh, like the prostitutes trying to get away with com- essentially committing murder by having by hiring these two as- by hiring these assassins uh, to kill people, and then you've got uh, the Schofield kid who is one of the assassins. <laughs> I, I don't think we ever find out his name. They just call him the kid. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my I watched this uh, my rewatch of this was with my dad, and he was like, "I don't like this guy. This guy's so annoying." And I was like, "That is the point." You, yeah. Yeah. You aren't supposed to like be a fan of the Schofield kid, but yes. Uh, yeah, it it's 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 uh, a movie I saw also when I was younger, and I think I appreciated it over time. But I my appreciation grew for its technical achievement, like the cinematography. Like watching it now, I just have such a because he's also uh, doing kind of John Ford callbacks here. You can tell that he is it's lovingly kind of implementing just visually speaking, the lighting and everything is just superb. Yeah, absolutely. And I watched the the remastered version for this as well. And it's it's gorgeous, um, of course. Mm-hmm. And there's also, it's not just callbacks to other directors he's worked with. It's his own movies as well. You know, The Outlaw, Josie Wales, or um, what would be the uh, High Plains Drifter in the, in the 80s, Pale Rider as well, these movies that he's done, you know, his character, William Money, Clint Eastwood's character, I don't know if we've stated that, William Money is this guy who used to be this vicious killer in the past, and he's reformed now, and he's just a simple farmer at this point. I ain't like that no more. Hmm? I ain't like that no more. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He says, I ain't like that. And he tells the Schofield kid, I thought you were here to kill me for what I'd done in the old days. 
Um, so in a sense, there's this coming to grips with the violence of the Western genre itself that is being done here uh, with Clint Eastwood almost being his former Western characters, again, like Josie Wales or, or these other movies. Uh, he regrets the past. He's scared about who he is now and what he can't, can and can't do now. Um, he's a very empathetic figure uh, in this movie. It's, it's really, really touching watching him sort of struggle and then sort of regain who he is. But finding who he, re- when he does regain who he is, when he remembers who William Money is, uh, oh man, that's one of the, <laughs> that's one of the great scenes in, in film history where, where he has the showdown in, in, uh, in Greeley's saloon. And it's a very somber movie as well, despite how cathartic that the showdown scene ultimately is. It, it, like, there's this very, there's a lot of attention paid to, the fact of what what it means to kill somebody, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of movies, and especially John Wick, like the setup is the same uh, as Unforgiven in some sense. But in John Wick, there, there's no consequences to killing. Uh, you just kill willy nilly, and that's that's all there is to it. But in in Unforgiven, you see this constantly stressed. You see Little Bill talk about it, and how he, and when he talks to W.W. Beauchamp, the writer, uh, who comes into town with English Bob, and, you know, he's written this book about English Bob, and then little Bill's like, yeah, none of this is true, and that's not what it's really like. And you've got the Schofield kid who thinks that this is what it's going to be like to kill people, and then he finds out that that's, that it's really horrifying. Getting back into kind of the legend, the, the legend mythos sort of, romanticization of things and then you find out what's real yeah exactly there's this perception by certain characters that there's this romantic way of of committing violence in the old west and uh Mm -hmm. no it's it's traumatic it's it's something very few people are able to do which is what i wrote in my review i think was something like you know most people are most people want greater power they want to be able to get away with things that that they value that maybe other people would push back against they want to do those things but especially killing that that is a mortal risk when you try to kill somebody i mean not that i know what it's like but but (laughs) i i I get that feeling when i think about these movies that i watch it is something that is rough and that's the way it should be uh of course we don't want it right. to be easy to kill people. I mean, you have to see it. It's, this is, I mean, it's number three on my favorites of all time. Uh, I I love this movie to death. See it. See see, Unforgiven. I, 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 it is one of my personal favorites as well. It has been for a long time and it gets better every time I see it. Yes. For sure. Yes. Um, this one I also rented on Amazon, but I, I think I also own it. Um, I was just happened to be at my parents' house. But you can rent this, buy it. Uh, it's one of Eastwood's best, which is saying something. So, um, okay, so we're getting to the number one, Joel's number one grower pick, the bane of my existence, A Clockwork Orange. I'm so sorry. <laughs> directed by Stanley Kubrick, 1971. 
Joel made me rewatch this film. And for that, I, he shall remain unforgiven. <laughs> oh, did, is that why you picked the order for these when you suggested this I didn't this choose order? the order. Okay, Joel, you chose the order. It just happened to work in my favor. That's true. I Okay. I gave you two different orders to choose them in, which was like personal oh. rankings. Remember, like which ones I like the most or the ones rankings based on which have grown the most. I just did it for the t- for this moment exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, you- S- I set up this joke long in advance. You chose- Just waiting. You chose very well, Ben. That's, uh, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good joke. Uh, so about the movie. About A Clockwork Orange. Um, a Clockwork Orange uh, is, is based on a book by an author named Anthony Burgess. Um, I read a fantastic article by Burgess called The Clockwork Condition yesterday that he wrote in 2012. It's excellent in The New Yorker. Very long article but it, I read the whole thing. I mean, it was just wonderful. So I'd recommend checking that out if you can. I link it on my page, but yeah. really, really, really helpful context. Um, basically, they said, what do you think of the movie? What do you think of the book uh, now? Like, what do you think of the reception? And he goes through uh, his philosophy and everything. But anyway, short, short of that, focusing on Kubrick, um, Joel, especially for this one. My first question is, when did you first see it? Did you watch it again after that? Or was this recently watched your second time? And then um, since you put this at number one, I'm going to assume that it had the biggest shift for you. Why? Okay. So I first saw this, I think I was 18 when I first saw this. And I'm going to, and I hated it to, for the record. This wasn't something I enjoyed and then grew on me a lot. Is something I hated, and I had to change my mind on it. Uh, the The book helped actually. Rereading the or not not rereading, reading the book helped. I understood the mo- the movie a lot better. But I sort of want to set the stage here. Like I was eighteen, good Christian boy from a good stable home and family. I still am, but uh, the <laughs> those this movie was just far beyond anything I could. I could understand or begin to think about at that point in my life. I'm so high on Lord of the Rings at this point in my life. And that's just such an earnest movie. It's not subversive in any way. It's classic hero's journey. Like I I had no conception of what a movie could be like when I encountered this, when I encountered a clockwork orange. So I absolutely hated it. I gave it at that time a four out of 10. So two out of five stars, basically. And over time, my opinion started to change when I realized what Kubrick was doing. Uh, and I, this movie, I saw it only the one time. You mentioned, you asked whether I had seen it in the intervening years. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it until literally, uh, basically this morning. <laughs> um, I tried to watch it last night, got interrupted. Uh, so I, I just watched it this morning. I hadn't seen it in all those years since, so it's been quite a long time. And yeah, I think it's a great film, even though I do not enjoy it. It has its moments when it's actually pretty easy to watch, but it is, it's gut-wrenching. It's not, 
is not fun. The analogy that I like to use or that I've used for a few years describing it to people is this is basically an episode of South Park, but debauched. It's <laughs> and South Park is already pretty debauched. It, uh, yeah. Just think, think, think of the opening. Let me let me set this, set this up here. Right. The story is about this this guy named Alex DeLarge, who is just a criminal who does whatever he wants, basically. But go through the opening. The the, the first major scene uh, after the milk bar takes place in that theater. A, a theater is a place of pretend. He's not really aware of what he's doing, even. I mean, yes, he is consciously guilty of his crimes, but this is all fake for him. This is all entertainment, right? The next scene, right, where they're driving to the house uh, that they're going to break into, did did you kind of feel like that was that looked fake? Because mm-hmm. they've de- definitely very, they've got that nineteen forties uh, driving in the car feel where they've mm-hmm. got this the screen behind them that's just playing a random road as they're driving. It doesn't look like a realistic scene on the road, and it very much could have. They definitely could have done that by the 1970s, made it look like they were really in a car. I think Kubrick very intentionally is making this movie unreal. He doesn't want you to think that this is realistic. It's so over the top. The jokes are often really bad, like bad sitcom writing. It's meant to to sort of make you feel this discomfort that what you're seeing is ridiculous and also disgusting. The where it's different from the book, um, the book is much more earnest, and I think the ending of the book completely has changes the meaning of the preceding twenty chapters. If I remember, it's twenty one chapters long. The movie doesn't have that chapter. The movie is it's only 20 chapters. So I think what the movie is really critiquing, it's a satire on, on a decaying society. Whereas it, it has the elements that Burgess put in there about what it means to choose and to be moral, how you have to be, you have to be able to choose the right thing in order to be a good person. But I think ultimately Kubrick's eye is aimed more at the society that birthed Alex DeLarge rather than because in the book, Alex, you know, changes on his own. He grows up, right? He's the school age kid. And Kubrick's point is much more cynical. It's like that the society that created this monster cannot also cure this monster. I mentioned South Park earlier. The South Park movie has an homage to a clockwork orange. If you remember, Cartman gets a, a chip inserted that buzzes every time he swears. And so he learns to substitute, do substitute swears and everything. So that comparison, I think, is really, you do need to watch it like it's an episode of South Park. It's very much over the top and ridiculous. Uh, Burgess also, uh, interestingly, because they were saying, why did you name him Alex? Um, and he said... Uh, it was twofold. One was uh, based on Alexander the Great, and that he's kind of a, an alpha male. Alex DeLarge sounds like Alex the Great, kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then also uh, that he is a lex unto himself. He has a law unto himself because ah. the Latin word for law is lex. Right. So these are the kind of tidbits I like. You know, I'm kind of a nerd. 
Um, but yeah, it, it, so so there's not none of this is like willy nilly. I don't really I don't really despise the Clockwork Orange because I look down on it, or I don't think that um, that it's worthy of delving into. It just for me is such a viscerally unpleasant experience that calls back to me seeing it when I was twelve <laughs> that I can't stomach it. Twelve? I was twelve and, and physically I had nightmares. The scene where he they played the Ludwig van von uh over images that he doesn't want associated and he's like, please turn it off. That's what that's the part that really traumatizes me out of everything strangely. Although the rape scene with Singing in the Rain is also very, very, very traumatizing for me. Um, but I'm not able to sort of um, critique it from a directorial pro production design sort of sense, which uh, is there. Um, but there, but uh, it's just very viscerally, like um, oh, yeah. my buddy Arb on Letterboxd was saying, it, it gets at your senses. Yes. Like it's it's so sensory. Yes. Overload. Yes. Um, you know, there's, I actually wanted to, in this discussion, I wanted to bring up uh, our mutual uh, most hated film ever, maybe, uh, El Topo. El Topo. Because- same time period, 1970. So you just have, well, 1970, 1971. You just had the loosening of the Hays Code. You've got the MPAA system now. You've got nudity that's allowed. You've got all sorts of profanity and and bad moral characters that can be played. You don't have to have the bad guy lose in the end. All these sorts of things that went away with the with the Hays Code going away. Um so there, there is a sense in both these movies, both El Topo and A Clockwork Orange, that, and although I hate one and love the other, but, but there is this sense of what can we do? What can we shock people with? What can we get away with? So do you think what changed for you was that you got older, read the book? I mean, what, what do you think was the impetus for sort of how you viewed this Again, as a second time, is it just where you are in your like maturity wise in your life, your own experiences or what made this, what changed this for you? So the moment when I realized what this was, what Kubrick was actually doing, I still had no desire to see the movie again at that point. I was talking about it with some people about what you could do with movies and what, how you could shock sent the senses in a way and still have a point. And I just remember thinking about, well, that kind of describes my reaction to A Clockwork Orange. Because that movie was so etched in my brain, I wanted to be able to rationalize why I either hated it or loved it. And I knew I hated it at that point. But what I started to realize, and it really got driven home by, the, by just looking at that poster over and over again, this is the revisionism going on in my head. I'm, I'm making this poster stick out, mm -hmm. but the poster has Alex looking at the audience. He is staring at the audience with his knife wielded. He is essentially saying that I am a reflection of you and that I am going to hurt you because you have hurt me. That's, that's what I get out of the movie. It is a testament to Kubrick that even in 2022, A Clockwork Orange would bother me so much after all the things I've seen. 
Uh, so I will say that, that it could still rile you up and be um, shocking this many years later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, still still be jarring just even in, in the sense of the colors that he chooses and um, the way he shoots things. Yeah, A Clockwork Orange, guys. I I cannot in good conscience recommend this myself, but on, but on Joel's behalf and for the uh, mission statement of my podcast itself, I have to say, check this movie out, but do so... Um, do so at your own risk. Parental discretion advised. Now we have arrived at the fun part. This whole this whole thing has been fun though. But this is this is the lighthearted section. Um, but just to recap, uh, before we get into the inside the actor studio inspired questionnaire here, um, let me recount to you uh, Joel's list that he wants you to watch. It um, it is naked. Whitnell and I, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Unforgiven, and A Clockwork Orange. And actually, uh, these are very realizing, Joel, that you chose um, great directors. Uh, the all, all of these are pretty pretty solid directorial. I, Bruce Robinson is the only one of the bunch that yeah. wasn't prolific, but um, these are pretty solid. Two very good movies, Bruce Robinson. That, this, and... How to get ahead in advertising? I, yeah. I haven't heard anything about the Rum Diaries. Other than that, I'm going to pretend that doesn't exist. Okay, so <laughs> Inside the Actor Studio with James Lipton inspired my popcorn questionnaire. Last five questions at the end. I have no idea what Joel is going to say. So uh, this is going to be a surprise to me as well as to you guys. Okay, so number one, first question, Joel, what is the most underrated movie i wonder if you're going to agree with me on this i suspect mm. at least you will be in full sympathy joe versus the volcano oh yes yes i went through my list of ratings on letterboxd and was trying to find something i knew that doesn't have a great overall score i've got plenty of movies that i think are super overrated but as far as super underrated this is this is Easily the most it has it has two point nine on Letterboxd oh. out of five. This is a perfect movie. I should give this five stars. I don't know why I haven't. It's, I don't know why you haven't. It's wonderful. I, I yeah. actually am uh, very proud of myself because I made you watch this too. You did. You yeah. did, and I, I I loved it from the opening frames. It's it's just wonderful. It has that oh that amazing opening. Um, it the movie doesn't sustain the energy the whole way through, but. It never loses any its sense of meaning or its sense of adventure. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah, that that opening is just wonderful as well. Fifteen minutes of perfect, perfect filmmaking, and it's it's delightful. It's Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, um, and uh, quirky, but kind of a kind of an unusual dark comedy. Yeah, Joe versus the volcano. Everybody, go out and see that right now. Hundred percent. It's crowd pleaser. It's, it's it's amazing. It's just wonderful. It's and it's silly. Uh, it's a perfect movie to just like put in when you have no idea what it is. It's tonally fun. Look at this. I'm selling this for you, Joel. It's, Joel, <laughs> uh, I I thought that Joel would like it, but then he gave it like four and a half stars, and 
I was so, I felt so proud because I didn't know that you would like it to such an extent. I, I, you were, you picked a, a good one. That, that Actually, you picked a lot of good ones that month, but yeah. That, yeah, was, that was, that was. That's cool. a winner. Do you ever start getting beautiful? I love when I agree. Number two, uh, what is your happiest movie experience? So this was one I had to think about. Um, I, I had an answer right away and I wasn't sure if it was actually the answer I wanted to go with, but I couldn't find one that topped it. So this one is, I'm going to be hyper-specific here. It's in the theater, me in 2003. Uh, I, I, I almost could tell you the exact date. I think it was December 18th, 2003. <laughs> wow. In the theater, watching Lord of the Rings Return of the King opening weekend, mm. super crowded. And it's a specific moment in the movie when the Rohirrim go over the crest of the hill and they're looking down at Minas Tirith. And King Theoden gives this wonderful speech uh, about not caring if they're going to die. I mean, it's not really a speech. It's more just a scream. <laughs> but it is so... The music swells at that moment. The cinematography is gorgeous. It is just... Uh, it was a movie I got. I'm getting tingling in my spine right now. Emotional. About it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's really, really powerful for me. Uh, I just I love that scene to death. And it, I, I don't know, maybe I've maybe I've felt happier in some movies since. But this was the one that came to my mind first. Return of the King. OK, n- number three, a movie that you changed your opinion on. I have two answers for this question is. Do you want the movie that I changed my opinion on towards the positive or toward the negative? Some people have done the positive and some have done the negative, Joel. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say whichever one was a bigger change. Uh, then that's the positive one. Uh, okay. I thought about doing the negative because I know it would shock you. Oh, well, then uh, do that. I want to be shocked. Okay. I'll tell you the positive one after, but it won't surprise you at all because you're actually you already know it. Um, but it's the movie Chasing Amy. So you don't like it now? Barely like it now. I rewatched it a few years ago. It still means a lot to me because it got me, it got me in that, in that early twenties period. Uh, I remember telling you about it at that yes, time. Yes. Yes. That it. was very important to you. That yes. movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it still has emotional resonance. Um, but I don't see it as a, as profound as I think I must have at that point. Um, and I, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's still a, a decent movie, but it doesn't speak to me the way that it did then. I do love, I do love the silent Bob speech though. I have to say, I, I, yes. I hear where you're coming from and I actually resonate with this because I too w- rewatched it and did not, I was like, wow, this isn't very good. Um, but the no. silent Bob speech is. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like I, for me, it was an easy 10 when I first saw it out of, I keep switching between 10 and five stars, but yeah. anyway, it was an easy, perfect film. Now I, it's a light seven out of 10, 3.5 stars. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that went down. Okay. Well, what yeah. went up? Uh, Purple Rose of Cairo was my choice for that. Yeah. It's not a Hollywood ending, but it's, it's meaningful. I agree. Yeah. Wow. That's a good one. Those are two good ones. Okay. The most important question, an actor you find undeniably sexy. So I'm just going to say the name and see if you even recognize who it is. Megan Follows. Megan Follows. She's not famous. 
she sounds familiar to me, I swear. She's I feel famous. Like I, you could say she's famous for one thing. I, I, so I'm afraid to ask what that one thing is, but share with <laughs> us. Megan follows. She played she played Anne Shirley in the Anne of Green Gables films. You mean like the show? Like like with Richard Farnsworth? I, I don't even know that name. I, I just know this woman as a part of my teenage years. My mom used to watch the Anne of Green Gables films. They made multiple ones for Canadian television. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom used to watch these. So as a teenager, I saw her all the time because my mom loves rewatching the same movies. And I saw this movie. I have, I've always had a thing for redheads. I was about to say I, that. I think this is I think this is partly why. She triggered something. Yeah. And believe it or not, I did not have to struggle to find this answer. When you sent me this question, oh my this gosh. was the first name that came to my mind. Sexy it too. You're you still stand behind this. I mean, oh. okay, I could say Anna de Armas. Yeah, sure. She's no, gorgeous. No. No, I like Megan Follows. That's a, that is the most um, talk about underrated. Like that isn't that is the most. It, I I do believe I watched this show though, and I know what she looks like. But for those of you who are googling it right now, um, Megan Follows, Anna Green Gables, the OG Anna Green Gables. <laughs> Everyone Joel's, listening right now knows something weird about me. Yeah, and it's her. It's your first crush. The first cinematic qu- crush kind of goes a long way, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if she's really. Uh, well, okay. She's not. She may be my first celebrity crush that I can think of. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Crush, yeah. Wow. Joel, that was not at all. I couldn't have guessed that in any way. So, bravo. Yes. Um, okay. And then the, the question that you have had it, Joel has not told me his answer to this question, but he has expressed his struggle to understand what, what I'm even asking. Uh, if you were to die and come back as a movie character, who would you choose? So I'm very interested in what you're, you're about to say. Yeah. So part of the reason I would have trouble answering this is because in general, I don't really think of wanting to live the life of any movie character. Uh, so it's hard for me to say, but I went through my list again and narrowed it down to two figures that I actually felt like I admired. And I'm going George to Patton. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. Go ahead. My Fuhrer! I came back! <laughs> um, no. Oh, man, I need to rewatch that. Um, oh, yeah. No, it, you'll, lo- you'll love this. Uh, I narrowed it down to just this one person right before we started recording. Uh, and that is Mr. Godfrey Park of My oh, Man Godfrey. My Man Godfrey. Yes. Yes. That man leads such a charmed life. I know. <laughs> and he's funny. He's got great wit. He's better looking than me. That's always a plus. And William like Bell. apparently he's rich as well. So that helps. Yeah. Uh, my Man Godfrey, uh, another underrated classic that everyone should see, is so wonderful. So, so heartwarming. Um, and Carol Lombard, some people shouldn't talk about some other people talking about <laughs> other people. Uh, it It's wonderful. I think that's a great choice, Joel. Yeah. 
I thought yeah. I thought maybe I'm getting plagued by recency bias. You know, I did see the movie mm-hmm. for the first time a few months ago. Rewatched mm-hmm. it a few months ago or a few weeks ago, and I thought maybe maybe this isn't really the one. But it's just he's just such a wonderful character. He's he's a good person, and he's got money, and he's got this beautiful wife at the in the film. And spoiler, but yeah, mm-hmm. my man Godfrey, and I support these films uh, entirely that you've mentioned so that's always a plus um well joel it has been a pleasure thank you so much for coming on our show we want you to watch these movies and for uh joel's sake we want you to watch them twice especially with the ones that are a little bit harder around the edges rougher around the edges um do not fret because they might change they might just grow on you see you at the movies